You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, well, so glad you could join us here this morning. We're going to get into Proverbs here in just a moment, but first, I would like to dismiss the kids. So we're going to have... uh, the younger kids, or well, the older kids, K to grade two over the yellow sign there. And the younger kids, ages three to four, back with Mrs. Troyer there, the blue sign, so they get the kids on their way. So like I said, we're going to be back in the Proverbs today, which should be great. I'm really looking forward to it. And we have the privilege of actually having our brother Trenton preach this morning. Now, Trenton is a small group leader. He's been a small group for several years, and it's been a real, real blessing. I enjoy my friendship with him. You've probably seen him play on the worship team as well, um, and Trenton, Trenton preached for us last summer, I believe, when he was in the Psalms. I was blessed by that. I still remember that sermon. Really looking forward to his word, or should I say God's word, through his servant Trenton as he comes. So I'm just going to pray for our brother Trenton and invite him up to come bring the word for us. So let's pray together. We'll prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord. Father, thank you uh, just for bringing us to, to here to gather together as your church. Uh, we recognize that uh, you, in your mercy, have rescued us from sin and death and really from ourselves so that we can have eyes to see the glory of Christ. We're so thankful that our hearts uh, can find joy, contentment, and satisfaction in the knowledge and in the vision of our Savior. And we pray this morning as our brother Trenton comes and preaches from your word and and just um, elaborates and clarifies and explains and applies uh, the truth of your word to our hearts so that it would be really your spirit that would uh, bring your word preached to land on our hearts so that it can be applied and so that it can be uh, used to transform us more into the image of Christ. We want to be like you and we want to Uh, turn away from uh, really the the sin and the selfishness that hinders us from uh, that goal and that mission. uh, So Lord, I just, again, I pray, would you, would this be a real time of worship as we hear from your word and as we're doers and responders to your word? And would you use uh, this this time of our gathering uh, to really impact our lives for the kingdom and for the good of growing your church? Uh, So Lord, we are submitting ourselves to you and asking you to accomplish your work that you might be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, Like Michael said, my name is Trenton. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as a small group leader here at Redemption. Uh, My wife, Camber, and I have been coming to Redemption for about four years now. Uh, You know, we're so grateful for a church that values uh, preaching through the Bible uh, verse by verse. There's so much value in encountering Scripture on its own terms. Um, But it is interesting to go through a season of topical preaching, like the one we're going through now, even as we bounce around uh, the book of Proverbs. And one of the topics in the Bible that gets a lot of ink, uh, but we really haven't spent a lot of time on over the past few years, uh, is the topic of money. Uh, Talking about money is often seen as uncomfortable or maybe awkward. Uh, You know, it's one of those conversation topics we're told to avoid around the water cooler, you know, pre-COVID. 
um, or at dinner parties or with friends or coworkers. And for whatever reason, uh, money is a topic uh, that typically remains private at church as well. We adopt the same mentality. Uh, it goes relatively untouched by our spiritual walks. I mean, maybe uh, we get the once-a-year reminder sermon if our church budget is behind the eight ball. Um, but as a result, we tend to rely on worldly wisdom um, uh, when it comes to managing our money. The Bible gets put on the shelf as we maybe plan our budgets or dream of new purchases or decide how much money to save or what to do with a tax return or work bonus. Um, but the Bible is not at all silent on the topic of money. In fact, God's word speaks very strongly and clearly throughout the Old and New Testaments about money. But God's wisdom is not like the world's wisdom. The Bible doesn't talk about money in the world's terms of budgets or stocks or portfolios. Instead, the Bible talks about managing our money primarily in two terms, greed and generosity. According to the Bible, every decision we make about how we manage our money comes back to acting out of either greed or generosity. And undoubtedly, the Bible puts generosity as the wise way of living with money. Let me get personal with you for a minute here. Uh, some of you know my wife Cambria and I welcomed uh, into the world our second child earlier this week, a uh, beautiful baby girl. She came about four weeks early, a bit of a surprise. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, and as we were in the hospital, I was reminded of the verse from Psalm 127 that says, children are a gift from God. They're a gift from God. And, you know, it had never been more obvious to me uh, than it was that Monday morning sitting in the hospital uh, with this baby girl in my arms, all five pounds and three ounces of her. Uh, we serve a generous God, one who gives amazing gifts like my new daughter Corinne to undeserving people like me. As children of the King, how can we not also be generous with the gifts that he's given us to serve others? Generosity isn't some side topic when it comes to money. Generosity is not the icing on the cake. It is the cake. So if you want to live wisely with your money, according to the sovereign God of the universe, you need to live generously. We're going to turn to the book of Proverbs and see what God has to say about living generously. But first, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit in shaping us more into the image and person of Jesus Christ. Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us to humble ourselves under your word this morning. God, would you reveal to us any sin that's in our hearts? Give us the humility and grace to repent and to turn and follow you this morning. Give us eyes to behold the beauty and majesty of Christ. Give us ears to hear the wisdom that is in your word. And give us hearts of faith to believe your will for our lives. God, we love you. And we need you this morning. Amen. Now, I think most of us have down a pretty basic theology of money. Everything we have belongs to God, including ourselves and all of our money. We're only stewards of God's money. He's the owner. And we're the stewards. And as stewards, our job is to use his money for his purposes. That means calling it my money isn't exactly accurate. It's God's money. Well, from there, we kind of assume that tithing covers everything we're supposed to do. Tithing, right, is the basic concept that 10% off our paycheck goes to God. It's just math. 
Maybe we've got an automatic bank withdrawal going, and we basically end up forgetting about it. Um, now, tithing is not bad. It's a really good thing. We should all be tithing. Having an automatic withdrawal from our bank accounts helps our church function predictably and function well. A tithing is an important act of obedience that reflects a heart changed by God. And Jesus never criticized the Pharisees for tithing. 10% off your paycheck is a fine place to start the conversation. But tithing is not the be-all and end-all of God's plan for your money. When the Bible lays out the wisdom of God's plan for our money, tithing barely makes up entry-level obedience. And while Jesus never criticized the Pharisees for tithing, he did call them to something much higher. The Bible uh, lays out a plan for us, and it's not called tithing. It's called generosity. Go back with me to the basic concept of money, that all of our money is God's. Remember, he's the owner and we are just the stewards. Generosity is naturally what we will do with our money when we acknowledge that it's all God's to begin with. So today, we're going to discover three characteristics of, the, of a biblical generosity. Um, to do that, we're all going to need a Bible. Uh, this isn't a friend, some friendly financial advice. Okay? It's not a hot stock tip. This isn't uh, Trenton's wisdom. I'm not coming to you with any authority in my own words. Uh, but this is God's house. And if we're going to understand God's will for our lives, we're going to need God's word. So if you don't have a copy on you, um, grab your phone, uh, download a Bible app, or open a Bible uh, in your browser, and we're all going to turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, we're going to see how God, in his wisdom, has ordained generosity as the wise way of managing our money. This is three characteristics of biblical generosity. Um, now we're going to be pulling uh, from all over the book of Proverbs and the Bible to discover what the Bible has to say about generosity, uh, but we'll be spending the bulk of our time in just a few passages. Uh, so first look with me at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. I'll read for us. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The first characteristic we see is the heart of generosity. The heart of of generosity. There's two concepts here in verse 9, and they both work together to shape for us the heart of generosity. Now, when we typically think about generosity, uh, our minds are drawn to the rules. Uh, we want to know the details about the actual giving rules. Um, maybe you find yourself asking questions like, uh, well, how much exactly does God want? Like, what percentage of my income? Uh, and is that percentage on gross income or net income? Uh, am I supposed to tithe on gifts? What about a work bonus or a tax return? Uh, the list goes on and on. Ultimately, though, we miss the point with this line of thinking. We need to align our thinking with how the Bible talks about generosity. And the Bible doesn't start the conversation on generosity by talking about the rules. The Bible starts the conversation by focusing on the heart. It focuses on the motivation. Uh, and this is where our passage starts this morning. Look again with me here at Proverbs 3.9. It starts with, honor the Lord with your wealth. This is the first concept behind the heart of generosity, honoring God. The heart of generosity starts with honoring God. This isn't just some introductory statement on generosity. It's the entire foundation. Don't miss this. This is the entire motivation behind a biblical generosity. It's entirely possible to give away everything you have 
and still not be considered generous by biblical standards. That's a pretty bold statement. Uh, It's entirely possible to give away literally everything you have and still not be considered generous by biblical standards. Well, how is this possible? It's because the Bible is concerned with the heart above all else. Jesus reinforces the importance of the heart when he's condemning the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus knows and acknowledges that the Pharisees tithe even on the herbs they're growing in their garden, but he still pronounces judgment on them. Why? Because their hearts weren't honoring God. They weren't doing it out of a love for God. We need to get our hearts right before God. And this is where Proverbs 3.9 starts. Honor the Lord with your wealth. The Hebrew word here for honor means weighty or heavy. Um, To borrow from Ray Ortland and his commentary on Proverbs, we might still say today that we're making a heavy decision or that someone's words carry a lot of weight. Uh, We still get this concept. So maybe we could paraphrase this verse by saying, manage your wealth in such a way that God carries the most sway. This means that our generosity before God is focused on giving him glory from the heart. The heart is the seat of your desires and affections, and the heart is what matters when it comes to generosity. Now, the heart is where greed starts as well. Instead of making the Lord weighty, we often make our own selfish desires weighty. Our hearts are drawn away by the world and by sin and by Satan to be focused on anything but God. Greed will ask, how much do I need to give? But generosity asks, how much can I possibly give? So we need to look inwards at our hearts. When we make decisions with our money, are we honoring ourselves or are we honoring God? This is a heart issue and our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. So we need to spend time in humble self-examination. Spend time in prayer, asking God to reorient your heart towards him, honoring him with your money. Do this as an individual. Do this as a couple. Do this as a family with your kids. We need to humble our hearts before God and give him the place of honor in our finances. Now, the second concept behind the heart of generosity is illustrated as we continue in verse 9. Read along with me again. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Here we're introduced to this concept of first fruits giving. This is the second concept behind the heart of generosity first fruits giving. Now, this idea of first fruits is uh, largely lost on us in a technological society. Um, but it's something that would have been front of mind for Israel as an agricultural society. So let's unpack it a little bit. The meaning is literally right there in the words. First fruits. Literally, these are the first pickings or harvest or collection of whatever crop or fruit had been sown. The concept of the giving of the first fruits uh, is part of Israel's ceremonial law. It's mentioned over a dozen times uh, in the Bible's books of the law. And it always has the same aim. It's to be a tangible reminder of how God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and how he provided for them Canaan as the promised land. Now, we as New Covenant Christians, we don't fall under the same ceremonial law, but if we're going to cultivate the heart of generosity, we absolutely still need to apply the concept of first fruits giving. What does this mean? 
Well, primarily, first fruits giving shows us that the heart of generosity is a heart of faith. The giving of the first fruits wasn't done after the full harvest had come in. It was done at the very beginning. It was done before you knew how much of a harvest you were going to get. It was done in faith that God would provide the rest of the harvest, just as God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and just as God provided the promised land in Canaan. First fruits giving is based on thanksgiving for God's past provision and generosity. And first fruits giving looks forward in faith to God's future provision and generosity. This is the concept that we need to apply to our hearts. If we're going to be a people of biblical generosity, we need to center our hearts on God. Everything about our money is to be done in the light of being a people who have been redeemed to be God's own possession. This means that we confess everything we have is God's and is under his control. And we demonstrate that tangibly by being generous off the top of our wealth in faith that God will provide everything we need. So practically, what does this look like? We've seen the heart of generosity is a heart that honors God above all else. We've also seen a heart of generosity is first fruits giving, right? A heart of faith. So how does this heart of generosity play out in our day-to-day lives? I'll give you two ways. First of all, we need to be in a routine of thanksgiving. If we are to cultivate a heart of generosity, we need to look at who God is and what he has done throughout history and corporately for us as a church. Um, This fall, I'm so excited to celebrate along with you 10 years of God's faithfulness to us as a local church. Everything we have is only by his grace. I also love the example we have uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The entire chapter is a solemn warning from God to the people of Israel to remember what he has done for them. I'll read a couple verses that should stand as a similar warning for us. This is Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 19. It says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. As a church, as families, as individuals, let's be sure to make a habit of thanksgiving and recounting stories of God's faithfulness. Second, we need to make actual plans to give generously. And make them first. Make them before you make other plans with your money. This is a very real version of first fruits giving. And this is how we demonstrate our faith in God when it comes to our money. Uh, When you make your monthly budget, uh, is giving done at the beginning? Is it a priority or is it something that gets tacked on after you see how much money you have left at the end of the month? Um, When you get a chunk of money, Maybe it's a bonus at work or a tax return or an inheritance or whatever. Uh, Does your mind immediately think of ways that you can serve yourself with that? Or are you looking for ways to be generous? Ultimately, God, in his wisdom, has laid out a pattern of generosity, and it begins with the heart. You can't be truly generous without a heart that honors God first and a heart that is focused on first fruits giving out of faith. Um, let's pause here for a second. Uh, don't get this wrong, even though it might sound strange at first. God doesn't actually need your generosity. Uh, he doesn't need it. 
Remember what we said at the beginning, all things are God's. He already has everything belonging to him. His plans aren't going to be in vain if you don't tithe. Um, So the question we need to be asking is, well, why tithe? Why does God command our generosity? And this brings us to the second characteristic of biblical generosity, the promise of generosity. Okay, go back to Proverbs 3. I'll read verses 9 and 10 again for us here. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God invites us and commands us to give because we will get a great return. This isn't an isolated passage. Flip over a few pages in your Bible to Proverbs 11, uh, verses 24 to 25. Here again, we have the concept that we should give out of a motivation for getting a return. This is what it says in Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Both of these passages speak to the same principle. They say that when you live generously, you will be blessed. Yeah, there's an intentional irony here. One would expect that the more you give away, the less you have. I mean, that's just basic math, right? We use the same concept to teach addition and subtraction to our kids. But that's not how it works in God's economy. In fact, God's wisdom is the exact opposite of the world's wisdom. The world says, get, 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 and keep it all for yourself. But God says, give and give and give and see what you'll get in return. Now, maybe, uh, hopefully, you've got some red flags going off in your mind. Uh, You're thinking to yourself, this sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel. Uh, Definitely not going to this guy's small group, that's for sure. Uh, Stay with me for a moment. The prosperity gospel, right, teaches that here and now on this earth, God wants believers to be physically healthy and materially wealthy, and that faith uh, is equated with financial success. But we know from many passages in Scripture that the prosperity gospel is patently false. Jesus warns multiple times in the Gospels against the evil of the love of money. Matt read part of this passage for us earlier. Luke 12, 15 says, Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This isn't God's goal for our lives. So we know that these passages in Proverbs aren't telling us to be generous so that we can get rich in return. God is not looking to motivate our greed. But we can't just throw away any idea of God blessing generosity either. There's a very real tension here, and we need to be able to come to terms with it. Now listen, sometimes we think that generosity should be so self-sacrificial that we shouldn't be motivated by any reward. Uh, But that's not actually biblical thinking. As we can see in these passages in Proverbs, and as we're going to see elsewhere in the Bible, God wants to motivate us towards generosity. He wants us to give generously with an eye toward the blessings that he will give us. Now, the Proverbs that we've read provide the general principle. However, we're going to look to the New Testament to see times when God provides us solid promises to motivate our generosity. The first one is the promise of earthly provision. The promise of earthly provision. It's simply this. God promises to provide for our daily needs. We are his children and he will take care of us. And God knows in his wisdom 
We need this promise to motivate our generosity. Bruce Watke puts it this way in his commentary on Proverbs. The creator of life will reward the true worshiper by sustaining his life. In our flesh and in our sin, we often shrink back from generosity because we're fearful we won't have enough to get by. We get anxious that our needs won't get taken care of if we live generously with our money. But God knows this, and he gives us this promise to cling to. Jesus gives us the perfect picture of this in Matthew 6 during the Sermon on the Mount. This is so crucial. The promise God gives us here frees us to be generous. This is Matthew 6, verses 24 to 33. Just listen to this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Solomon, even in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Wow. God promises to provide for our needs, and this promise frees us to not pursue the love of money. It frees us from greed, and it frees us to be generous. We can be generous because the God of the universe, the God who actively clothes the flowers, he considers you more infinitely valuable and he will provide for all your needs. Now, this isn't necessarily to say Christians will never starve or never be without clothing, but it is to say that all of our contentment is found in Christ. We can be generous because we are placing our lives in the hands of the sovereign God of the universe. And he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, practically, for our own budgets, this means we do really need to revisit what's a need versus a want. Right? A new cabin by the lake is not a need. Uh, a new set of golf clubs is not a need. Speaking to myself here. Uh, true biblical generosity will be sacrificial because it tangibly proves that money does not have a vice grip on your heart. But true biblical generosity is anchored by the promise of God to provide for all our needs. Now, the promise of generosity not only takes the form of provision for our daily needs, but also the provision for the purpose of continued giving. Let me say that again a bit more slowly. The promise of provision for the purpose of continued giving. Okay, yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful, so let me unpack that. When we are generous... God is able to provide us with further abundance for the express purpose of further generosity. This is the promise of stewarded grace. It's the shortest way I could put that. 
Uh, Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, those who do good with what they have shall have more to do more good with. Paul draws out this exact same principle in 2 Corinthians 9 when he's seeking to motivate the Corinthians towards generosity. Listen to what he says here. And note the same principle we just heard in Proverbs. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8. Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Hear that last verse again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What Paul is saying is that when we give cheerfully to God, God is able to satisfy your daily needs so that you will have an abundance to give more and more. Uh, And it's important, this comes back to the heart. When our hearts are right before God, he gives us more opportunities and resources to be generous with and glorify him by doing so. But if your heart is greedy, God isn't glorified by giving you more. So don't count on it. God isn't some vending machine where you put in your generosity and out of it you get to be rich. But if your heart is cheerfully generous, his promise is to give you more opportunities for more generosity. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, the third form of the promise of generosity is by far the most valuable. When we are generous, God promises to bless us spiritually. The third promise of generosity is the promise of spiritual blessing. This is the true depth of the wisdom of God. Listen to this. God is not interested in making you rich. What he is committed to is making you more like the person of Jesus. And generosity is one of the ways we can become most like Christ. When we are generous, we are reflecting the character of God and the generosity and grace of Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. When we choose the wisdom of generosity, we are choosing the eternal joy and lasting fulfillment of being who we were created to be, of reflecting the generous character of our creator. We are new creations in Christ. We are more and more being shaped into the image of Christ, and our true joy is being found in who we were made to be. This is why God's promise to the generous is a promise of spiritual blessing. Generosity truly is the way of wisdom. So these three promises, the promise of earthly provision, the promise of stewarded grace, the promise of spiritual blessing, these promises free us and spur us on towards spirit-filled generosity. Let's be encouraged by these promises. Pray them uh, as an individual, as a couple, as a family. God, I know that you provide my every need. Give me the faith in your promised provision so that I can know I'm free to be generous. God, would you search my heart? Help me to not pursue the love of money, but would you give me more opportunities and means to give so that you will be glorified? God, make me more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help me by your spirit to reflect your character and generosity and give me the joy, peace, and eternal happiness that are the result of a Christ-centered generosity. Brothers and sisters, let's pray like this. 
Let's take hold of these promises by choosing to be generous. So, Proverbs has shown us the heart of generosity, which is the foundation of a biblical generosity. And Proverbs has also shown us the promises of generosity, which are the good and godly motivations. Practically then, what does generosity look like? It's here we turn to the third characteristic of generosity, the focus of generosity. Over half a dozen times in the book of Proverbs, generosity is described in the same way, giving to take care of the needs of the poor. Here's what Proverbs 28 verse 27 says. It says, whoever gives to the poor will not be in need, but he who hides his eyes will receive many curses. And Proverbs 14:31 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Time and time again, God reveals to us in his word that his will for our generosity is to take care of the needs of those among us. This isn't some qualified uh, prescription. If someone's in need, they are worthy of your generosity. Now remember, like we talked about earlier, God isn't actually in need of your generosity. He's fully capable of providing for the needy in any way he wants. But he has specifically ordained the generosity of his people, of the church, as the means of taking care of the needy. Why is this? It's because generosity is not to point to ourselves. It's to point to God. Our generosity is ultimately motivated by the gospel. While we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ emptied himself for us. He came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross so that he could be the one final sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the grave to prove he was God and to show his victory over sin and death. And he freely offers the, sin, the salvation from sin and death to anyone who would believe and put their trust in him. All because of love. This is the generosity of the gospel. How could we who have been given all the riches of Christ hold on so tightly to our puny little earthly riches? Our generosity is a way to give him glory. When we give, we have the opportunity to say, I'm a child of the most high God, a God who pours out his grace so lavishly on me that I can't help but do the same with what he's given me. Giving to the needy is a tangible demonstration of passing on the grace of God to others. We get to show how our hearts have been changed by the gospel by using our earthly riches generously for the kingdom of God. And this comes back to the fact that generosity is a heart issue. When we give to those in need, we reflect the love of Christ in giving to those who cannot repay us. Our motivation is not one of repayment, but selfless love and grace. And grace is a free gift, not earned. God pours out his grace freely on us before we meet some qualification. Our giving ought to be the same way. May our generosity be as free and selfless as the grace that we've been shown in Christ. Now, let's apply Proverbs to our context, right? To this side of the cross as the church. By unifying us in Christ and adopting us into his family, God has ordained the church as the means by which his glory is shown in the world. We don't operate as lone ranger Christians out there. Instead, God has called us to work as a unified church, 
to accomplish his purposes. Practically, this means that the primary means of our generosity is through the local church. We give to our local church so that the church can distribute according to the needs of the body. Uh, Redemption, through our generosity, we've been able to minister to the needs of our sister church in Moldova. Uh, We've been able to provide support to those who are struggling financially due to COVID-19 or other life events. Um, We've been able to have an impact in Uganda uh, through the ministry of Shannon Hurley and SOS Ministries, as well as other long-term and short-term missionaries. God has ordained our generosity to have a tangible impact, and our elders in church have identified high-impact areas that our giving can help. By focusing our generosity through the church, let's take the glory off of ourselves and put it on Jesus. He must increase and we must decrease. Do we have a plan for regular giving to the church? Are our minds set on finding new ways to be generous or just on new ways to spend on ourselves? Let's stretch ourselves to give to God's church and see his will be done through us for his glory. Now, beyond giving to the church, there's lots of other practical ways for us to practice generosity. We need to be thinking about how we can use our earthly means for eternal kingdom purposes. This is going to look different for each one of us, but hopefully there's a few common targets. Uh, A great way to use your money generously is to create space to build and deepen relationships, especially with unbelievers. Um, Use your money to have unbelieving neighbors over for meals. Uh, Take a coworker out for coffee. Spend extra on groceries and make an extra meal for the single mom who lives down the street and could use it. The list could go on and on. I'm sure you could think of plenty of other ideas based on your unique circumstances. God has placed each and every one of us uniquely in our own neighborhoods and places of work and circle of friends so that he can be glorified by how we use our money to love others. I know for myself, one of the biggest challenges to generosity is just not stopping to think about it. Um, So this is your challenge. You have homework today. Uh, Right now, while I'm talking, um, just take a look over at your spouse, uh, or if you're not here with your your spouse, or you're unmarried, take a look over at someone uh, in the row next to you. Um, Just right now, as I'm talking here, uh, just make eye contact with one another. Your your job, your, your task today is just to connect just to talk about opportunities. Where can you be generous? Uh, Is it with a neighbor? Is it with a coworker? Um, A friend? Maybe another parent you've met at the park a couple of times? Um, Just take the time. Talk about where you as an individual, uh, again, as a couple or as a family, can have opportunities to be generous. Brothers and sisters, we, we so often avoid the topic of money when it comes to our spiritual maturity. You know, we don't want to offend and we don't want to make things uncomfortable. Um, but we need each other in this. We need accountability so that God's will will be done in our lives. So let's talk with each other. Let's pray with each other about generosity. And let's yield to the Holy Spirit as he guides us into all truth. Nothing in our lives is off limits with God. So let's spur one another on to love and good deeds. Um, Let me for a moment speak to our specific time right now. Uh, I know we've all been going through a time of pretty, a significant uncertainty uh, due to COVID-19. 
And I know the temptation is strong to um, batten down the hatches, right, and play it conservatively when it comes to our finances. And often the first thing we cut is giving. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, it's entirely prudent, and there's wisdom to being financially conservative in times of uncertainty. Um, But let's remember God's wisdom of generosity. God blesses a first-fruits giving mentality that goes out in faith and prioritizes generosity. You know, I was struck by the example uh, we studied earlier in the year in the book of Ruth. Uh, Remember Naomi and her family, uh, they leave Bethlehem and they go to Moab due to a famine that was happening uh, in Bethlehem. Uh, And they stay in Moab for 10 years, 10 straight years of famine. And then they're coming back to Bethlehem and they encounter Boaz, a farmer. Now in the first harvest after literally 10 straight years of famine, what would you expect a farmer to do with his first harvest? I mean, reasonably, you could expect him to play it safe, right? Uh, to keep it all gathered up, you know, see how much he got, and then uh, maybe if there was extra left at the end, then he would give some of it. But do you remember what Boaz did uh, when Ruth came to his field? Uh, he gave and gave and gave. It was early in the harvest, and he was over-the-top generous. He had his servants uh, accidentally on purpose drop extra sheaves of grain for her to gather up. Boaz gave and gave far beyond the letter of the law. Ten straight years of famine, and it didn't stop Boaz from living generously. Brothers and sisters, let's not let this time of uncertainty stop us either. It's relatively easy to give when things are stable, but it's even more glorifying to God when we are generous in times of earthly uncertainty. So let's focus our hearts on God. Let our generosity not be about doing more or adding more rules, uh, but let our generosity be the natural outflow of hearts that have been transformed by the gospel. Let's be motivated by the good and godly promises of generosity. And let's focus our generosity by giving through the church and living generously in our communities to see God's kingdom come in the lives of those around us. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to remember one thing from this morning, let it be this quote from John Wesley. He says, instead of asking yourself, how much of my money will I give to God? Ask yourself instead, how much of God's money will I keep for myself? God's way of wisdom is generosity. Let's pray. God of glory and of grace, you are the Lord and we are your possession a people of your choosing. You called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light so that we may proclaim your excellencies. God, you've been so generous to us. You know and provide for all of our needs. God, we confess that we have walked away from you with regard to our money. We've often sought to use our money for our own pleasures and selfish desires instead of for your kingdom. We've often doubted your ability to provide We've often acted too conservatively with our money. We've allowed worry to guide us instead of faith. God, forgive us. We believe, help our unbelief. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to lead us in all righteousness. And thank you for illuminating your word to us and showing us your will for our lives. Help us to live faithfully with our money. God, help us to live generously as you have been generous with us. Give us the means and opportunities to give to our church and to the needs of those around us. 
Give us boldness in building relationships with our neighbors and those who don't know you. Give us the strength and humility to encourage each other and be accountable to one another with how we steward our money. God, we love you. Turn our hearts towards you in obedience. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.